0: With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Therefore, he appointed Jesus as head of the church, which is his body. And just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ and us so we submit to one another out of reverence for christ and mature in the body putting off our old selves to be made new and clothing ourselves with the full armor of god each part does its work until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the son of god from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love. And there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all.
1: Good morning. It is good to have you here on an incredibly beautiful day here in Bellingham. Thanks for being here. Those of you with our Skagit campus, glad that you're with us uh, today. And it's good for you to have uh, Pastor Brian back with you as he's been with us these last couple weeks up here. And those of you who are in Boca Raton and watching uh, online right now, so glad, glad that you're with us as well. If you're new to Cornwall, maybe you just started coming in the last three weeks and you said, I really like that church. They have young pastors that preach. That day is over. I'm back. My name is Bob, I'm one of the pastors here. But I gotta say, um, it has been amazing to hear the word of God from Pastor Scott and Pastor Brian these last three weeks. They have done an absolutely phenomenal job, uh, these young men. Would you agree with me on that one? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So good. So good as they have opened up uh, the word of God for us. And Pastor Brian, you know what's great about him is he's so short. I, I mean, like, like the length of his sermons, not, not, I wasn't talking about, his sermons are short, they're under 40 minutes, it's, it's really amazing, I mean, he's a great preacher, just don't let him borrow your crock pot, if you don't know what that's about, ask him, anyway, it's good, good to have you uh, with us as we continue on, i want gonna tell you, a couple weeks ago, I was up uh, at the hospital, um, which our, our pastors do, is going up to the hospital to visit the sick and infirmed, and pray with a friend of mine, and uh, that day, the parking lot of the hospital was completely packed and the, uh, the designated clergy spots, which you didn't know that we got our own designated spots, they were filled, probably with non-clergy, but um, <laughs> the parking lot was completely filled, I mean completely filled, and I had to park literally about as far away from the hospital as is possible on their premises. But it was a beautiful day, it wasn't that big of a deal. And I, so I was walking across the parking lot and I was thinking about an interview that I had seen on TV with this guy, and I, this is not a judgment, this is an observation. This guy was way out there. He was just weird. Uh, the things he said, the way he said them, I just, it was just weird. And I was thinking about how weird it was and the things he was saying and thinking, what if I was ever interviewed and I wanted to really portray how weird I am. And uh, because I know I'm out of touch with things, but I don't get the whole spirit animal thing. But um, so I was thinking, you know, if someone asked me, about my spirit animal. And I was thinking, how would I respond that would make me sound like I'm just way out there? And I thought, you know, I would probably tell them my spirit animal is a platypus, because who would ever pick a platypus as a spirit animal? And then I thought, well, not just the content of what I would say, but how would I say it in such a way that people are going, that guy is just weird. And, and so I thought, um, I'd probably say, yeah, my spirit animal is a platypus because I am such an enigma,
0: <laughs>
1: and I did that. I started laughing at myself, because I said this out loud, and I thought, I, I am such an idiot. But it-, it so humored me, and I had time, because I was still walking across the parking lot, I decided to try it again, out loud, mind you. So I'm walking across the parking lot, and said, my spirit animal is a platypus, because I am such an enigma, and I looked over, and there's a man sitting in his car with his window down. <laughs> I like wanted to say, I'm going to check myself in. I'm okay. (laughs) Now listen, today we are going to talk about an enigma. Uh, It's not a spirit animal and it's not a platypus. It is this glorious mystery, this enigmatic reality that we get to live in that is just um, mind-boggling. And we're gonna be looking at that and landing on that uh, by the end of our time today, hopefully. And we are uh, spending the whole summer looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. It's called Ephesians. It was written to a lot of churches, but probably started and maybe ended in Ephesus. So it's called Ephesians. But our approach to this letter is to not look at it as an ancient 2,000-year-old document that was written to people that are now dead who used to live in Turkey, but to look at it as God's word to us, Paul writing a letter to us that this is to the church at at Cornwall and that we can uh, apply this to our lives. Today, um, we are going to be in chapter three. Now, the interesting thing, and, and probably the hard part about doing these kind of series is there are pieces that tie together from week to week, and if you don't see it as a complete whole. You might miss those, and they might seem random. As we're about halfway through, almost coming up on halfway through this series, I want to encourage you again this week to read the entire letter. It's only six chapters. Read it in its entirety, and you begin to see how these themes tie together. Today, we're going to be going into chapter three, so if you have your Bible, your tablet, your phone, you want to follow along, Ephesians chapter three. Interesting thing about chapter three is that it's broken into two parts. The first part is like this this parenthetical footnote, this parenthetical paragraph, this aside, this thought that he comes up with. And the second part is a prayer. And so we'll look at that second part next week Of the prayer. We're going to spend two weeks in chapter three. As we've been going through, Paul has just been uh, having this letter written with with all of these just um, amazing truths. And as is probably the case with some of his other letters, he's probably dictating this to someone else who is writing it down. And I wonder if, after he's been talking for a while, he says, you know, why don't you read back to me? What, 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 have, I, what, what have we got down there so far? And he just talks about these, these truths about God. I mean, if you've been with us or if you've read the book, he talks about how we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms through Christ. And how he has chosen us, predestined us before the creation of the world to be holy in his sight that he has redeemed us, he has forgiven us, he has accepted us, he has adopted us, he has given us an inheritance, he has bedazzled us with his grace. And then he follows that up with a prayer and he prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would know the hope to which we had been called, the glorious inheritance of God's blood people, his saints. And he reminds us, going into chapter two, that we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sins, lifeless, corpses, but God, you remember that, that, uh, that Brian talked about it, but God, because he is rich in mercy, that he brings us to life in Christ by his grace through faith. It's not something we did. We're not saved by works, but we're saved for good works. And then he talks about how God has taken these, this, these two hostile groups, these rival groups, these enemy groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's brought them together as one new man. As Brian illustrated that with, with the whole picture of the, the, the Huskies and the Cougars and bringing them together as Huskers or something, which, if you're from Nebraska, that's really good for you. But brings them together as one new man and one body. And he concludes chapter two with saying, Those of us who are in Christ, were are this, this new nation. And we're we're members together in this new nation, and we're members together in this new family, and then he closes it out with one more picture, and it would have been so relevant for the church in Ephesus, because he talks about a temple, and if you were with us from the beginning, you know that Ephesus was known first and foremost for the temple that they had for Artemis, the temple that was up on the hill was four times bigger than the Parthenon in in Athens, Greece. It was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People from all the known world would travel to this temple. And in the shadow of this temple, he talks about another temple, far more incredible, far more glorious, far more magnificent. It's a temple that has the foundation laid with the apostles and the prophets and the chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. And this temple isn't being raised up with columns of marble and stone. It's being raised up with with these individual people who are a part of this temple. That would be those who are in Christ, you and I. And at the end of chapter two, he says this. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit, that you're part of this new temple. All in all, you're more than just another brick in the wall. This isn't a pagan temple, this is a holy temple. This isn't to a mythological goddess named Artemis, this is to the God of the universe, the creator of all things, God himself. This isn't just one of the wonders of the ancient ancient world, this is a wonder in the material and spiritual eternal realm of all things and you get to be a part of it. Now, that's chapters one and two and I think as he maybe has this read back to him, he just says, wow, the truth, the goodness of God, and so he starts in chapter three, you ready? Yeah. Let's do it. He starts off this way, for this reason, with all that in mind, all that he's written into this book, for this reason, I, Paul, which I think is interesting. I mean, he's only two chapters into this thing and he's reminding them who the letter's from. He already told them on the front end, it's not like they forgot. It reminds me of when my mom calls me. She is in my contacts. When she calls me, my phone, brings up a picture of her, and it says, Mom. And when I answer, I always answer not, hello, or Bob here, I always answer, hey, Mom. So my phone has given me a visual and a, a written, this is Mom, I say, hello, Mom, and her response is always, hey, Bob, this is your mom. <laughs> I know, and Paul says, Hey, Ephesus, this is Paul, I know, I get it. He's bringing it back just one, in case you forgot, I'm the one writing this, or maybe he forgot, I don't know. But he writes this. But he goes on to describe a little bit about his circumstance. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now what's interesting is, sometimes when Paul writes, he uses metaphors. He says, "I even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, kind of this metaphor. I'm a bond servant, kind of a metaphor. When he talks about being a prisoner, he is not speaking metaphorically. Again, if you were here from the very beginning, this is what is referred to as one of the prison letters, one of the prison epistles. He was in prison. But what is interesting when you look at this, when he says a prisoner of Christ Jesus and for the sake of of you Gentiles, is when you look at the prepositions, the of and the for, that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I find this fascinating. He doesn't say I'm a prisoner of Rome, I'm a prisoner of Caesar, I'm a prisoner of Festus, I'm a prisoner of Agrippa, I'm a prisoner of the Jewish people. He's in a Roman prison waiting for trial before Caesar, sent there by Agrippa and Festus because the Jews wanted him out of the game. But he says, I am a prisoner of Christ. Now this is amazing, his attitude. He says, the only reason I'm in prison is because Christ has called me to do something and I've been obedient, and that obedience to Christ has landed me here. What an attitude for us. When we are walking in the will of Christ and things don't go the way we hope they will, to know that Christ is still in control, he is still sovereign, and he is going to use this for his purposes. He says, I'm a prisoner, but not of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And it almost is like this badge of honor, because I am walking in obedience. And then he says, for the sake of you, Gentiles. Remember, there were these two groups. Paul was of the Jewish group and the Gentiles. The Gentiles were were anybody that was non-Jewish. The barbarians, the Scythians, you know, the the Greeks, uh, us, you know, for you, Gentiles. And I want to take just a minute to remind us, go, a little backtrack of what we did about five weeks ago, of why he would say this, that, that I'm a prisoner of Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. We hit this briefly at the introduction of, of the whole book, is that when uh, Paul, who was a Jewish man, was converted. When he met Jesus and he had been out um, really persecuting those who were followers after Jesus, he was beating them, he was having them thrown in prison, he was having them killed. He meets Jesus and while his life is changed, Jesus calls him to a specific purpose of reaching the Gentiles, reaching these non-Jewish people with the truth of the grace of God and his forgiveness and his life that he has for them. So he launches out on these missionary journeys and there's three of them. Three of these missionary journeys. The third one, he spends uh, two years in Ephesus. On his way back, he comes back to Jerusalem and he brings with him a man named Trophimus. Trophimus of Ephesus. One of these guys from Ephesus comes back to Jerusalem with him. He's non-Jewish, he's a Greek, and he's been seen around town with Paul. Paul decides to go to the temple in Jerusalem where the non-Jewish people are not allowed and something happens. We read this in Acts chapter 21. It says, some Jews from the province of Asia, maybe from Ephesus, maybe they had been there when Paul had done all this stuff, saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. He had not, but they made this assumption because they had seen him around town with Trophimus, that that Paul had brought him into the temple. He didn't, but they just made that assumption. So they, they stir up the crowd, and it's not a peaceful protest. In fact, the Bible says they begin beating him, trying to kill him, and the Roman officials come in and arrest Paul, not because he's done anything wrong, but to spare his life. Now, I find this interesting, that just years earlier, Paul had gone around beating and trying to kill and arrest people who are followers of Jesus, and now that he's a follower of Jesus, he's being beaten, trying to get him killed, and he's being arrested. So they're going to take him away, and he says to the Roman guards and the Roman leaders in Greek, he speaks to them in Greek, and they're like, whoa, 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 you speak Greek? And he says, yes, I don't know what yes is in Greek, but he says it in Greek. And so they're like, okay, and he says, can I please just address the crowd? And they say, okay. So they bring him out to the crowd and he speaks to them in Aramaic. And they're like, whoa, he speaks our language. He speaks Aramaic. And then he begins to tell them, he calls them brothers because he was one of them. He is one of them. Brothers and fathers. You know, I'm just like you. He said, I, I was Jewish and in Jerusalem, and the temple, and the law, and he says, and I was tutored under Gamaliel, I mean, right here in J-Town, I mean, this is my deal, and I was all about the law, and I was zealous for the things of God. In fact, I tried to kill people who were followers after Jesus, and then he just starts telling his story, how Jesus met him, and they're listening with great intensity, and then he gets to this point where he says what Jesus had said to him. The Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now up to this point, these people are listening with rapt attention. That he's speaking their language, he's one of them of what this Jesus has done, and then he makes this statement. And that's where everything changes. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. Now, I wanna go down one little rabbit trail. If I ever preach an absolutely horrible, horrible sermon you're welcome to tell me that, but please, don't respond with this. <laughs> Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Even if it's heretical, fire me, but don't kill me. I mean, it's like, whoa, tough crowd. So they're getting riled up. They're going to kill him again, so they, they take him away. And there are these plots to assassinate him. You can read all this in, in, in Acts. There are these plots to ambush this, this, uh, this uh, convoy or whatever and, and to kill him. And that comes to light. Anyway, they take him to Caesarea Maritima, down by the sea. And he's in prison there for two years. He meets with Felix. Felix goes. He meets with Festus. King Agrippa comes with his wife, Bernice. And they call him in to tell his story. And again, he just takes this opportunity. I'm a prisoner for Christ. You know, this is, this is a great opportunity for me to share the gospel. He tells his story. And in the midst of telling uh, um, Festus and Agrippa and Bernice's story, he says this. This is so beautiful. He says this. Jesus told me, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes. Does that sound like the prayer he prayed in in Ephesians 1? That the the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Sending them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. We'll get to that in chapter uh, four or five. And from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He says, this, this is why I go. This is why I work for the sake of the Gentiles. So back to chapter three. He says, for this reason, all the things that God has done, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, that I can speak the truth, that I can have your eyes be opened, that you can go from darkness to light, that you can be forgiven, that you can experience the power of God. And then he puts this little, this little dash in here. Little hyphen. I think it was in about the third or fourth grade in language arts when I began to learn about incomplete sentences and sentence fragments. Apparently, Paul missed that class because he stops mid-sentence. He doesn't, this is not a complete sentence for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, it kind of leaves you hanging. And he stops in mid-thought, in mid-sentence, incomplete. And then for the next 13 verses, next 12 verses from chapter, from verse two to verse 13, it's like this parenthetical paragraph of, that reminds me of something. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Let let me, hold that thought, he says. And now he stops right here. He'll come back to this. We'll see it at the very end of next week as well. He comes back, but he stops mid-thought. He says, hold that thought. We'll be back. And then he starts into this paragraph that's almost like this parentheses inserted. Verse two: "Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you." And that is the mystery. Here we go now, the enigma, the mystery. the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. Three times in the next three verses, he will use this word mystery." He keeps talking about this mystery. And as we'll see, when he uses the word mystery, we can see it from two different angles of this mystery. Now, when I hear the word mystery, you know what comes to my mind? Ruh-roh. Ready? What was the van named in Scooby-Doo? The mystery machine, of course, this is a mystery, this is good, this is like Scooby-Doo all over again. He talks about this mystery and you think, well he's gonna put on his Hardy Boys deal and his Nancy Drew and he's gonna solve this thing and and this mystery. He says, no, 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 actually quite the opposite, I'm not gonna solve this at all. He writes this, that is this mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. He said, I didn't figure this one out. In fact, I think there's probably a time where he says, I don't know how I missed this. I mean, he was so well-schooled and steeped in Hebrew scriptures, and it's all throughout there. He's like, how did I miss this? I have no idea. We all missed it. I'm not the only one. It was like it was hidden. And when we see this word mystery, we can see it this way, is that it's mystery. It was veiled, and now it's revealed. Like it was hidden, but now we can see it. Um, You may or may not be aware of this. Uh, Just a couple of days ago, on Thursday, uh, the 18th, Chevrolet unveiled the brand new, redesigned, mid-engine, C8 Corvette Stingray. If you want to celebrate me as your pastor, <laughs> the base model starts under $60,000. This is a brand new revelation. They've been working on it. They've been putting it together. And it's a whole new redesigned, mid-engine, like a, like, a, like a Lotus, like a McLaren, like a Ferrari. It's different, and it's under $60,000. But they unveiled it, it had been hidden, but now it's out there for everyone to see. And he says, this mystery, it's been veiled. But now it's been unveiled, not for something I did. And it's been unveiled, but it's been hidden for generations. In fact, in, in Romans he says, now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel, the good news of Jesus, and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. This mystery that he's speaking of that we're gonna look at here in a minute, this mystery that has been revealed, that has been unveiled, this isn't something that just came up. This wasn't like God saying, you know, this whole idea of the Jewish people being my chosen people and this new kingdom, it's just not working, so what are we gonna do? I see. Okay, I've got an idea. Okay, this isn't what I originally planned, but I think we can redeem this. It's not like that at all what you see, he said, this, this has been veiled for ages, for generations, but it was there all along, and that this mystery was not an afterthought. It was part of God's eternal plan. If you were with us early on, or if you read the first chapter, you remember in chapter one, verse four, it said that he predestined us before the creation of the world to be holy and righteous in his sight. That this was a part of his plan from the very beginning. Not just the Jewish people. The Jewish people would be the instrument, would be the vehicle that would usher in the mystery that would be in Christ Jesus fulfilled so that we could. But this was always planned the whole time. And so one way you look at this mystery when he talks about this is that it was veiled, it was hidden, but now it's unveiled. I said there's a second way to approach this thing of mystery. And the way we can look at that is that mystery can be a, um, something that's completely illogical. Something that makes no sense whatsoever. Something that we would have never come up with on our own. It, it, just, it's just, it, it just doesn't make sense at all. Let me illustrate that. Billy Bob Thornton. It's a mystery to me. The man's been married six times. The average uh, lifespan of his marriages is two and a half to three years. But the biggest mystery is Angelina Jolie. Now listen, I know I don't know how to think like a woman, but Ange, Billy Bob, complete mystery to me. I would have never come up with that. Did not see that one coming. That's another way to look at this mystery. That this mystery he's talking about, he says, you would have never even imagined this. You would have never guessed this. So this was outside of the, the whole idea of, of, of your realm of reality. The, the Winchester mystery house, I, I don't get it. Makes no sense to me whatsoever. It's beyond logic. It, it, it's irrational. In 1939, there was some stuff that Russia was doing. It had nothing to do with any kind of campaigns or an old face app. But Russia was involved with some stuff, and Winston Churchill, thanks, one person got that. Russia was involved with some stuff, and Winston Churchill responded about Russia this way. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But perhaps there is a key. It doesn't make any logical sense. I don't understand it. I don't get it. It's not what I would have come up with. And when we see Paul talking about this mystery, there is the fact that it was veiled and now it's revealed, but there's also this side that this makes no sense at all. No one would have ever thought this up. To understand this aspect of the mystery, we have to backtrack just a little bit. Ephesians chapter two, verse 12 says, remember, and he's talking about the Gentiles, but that would include us, me. Remember at that time, you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Very, very desperate situation. Pastor Brian talked about this last week. Very dark situation. On our own, apart from Christ, we really have no redeeming value whatsoever. There's nothing we bring to the table. There's There's no reason why we should even ever be invited to the table, we've got nothing outside of Christ. And this is why none of them would have ever thought this, we would have never ever come with this on our own. Verse six, he reveals what this mystery is. This mystery is that through the gospel, the good news of what Jesus brings, through the good news, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. No one would have ever thought that up. Here's this entire group that is not a part of the chosen nation, they're not a part of the chosen people, they're not a part of the covenant of Abraham. Here's this entire people that are hopeless, they're without God, they're far from God. That somehow these outsiders, these uncircumcised dogs, these unclean, untouchable ones, would somehow come together with Israel. And now he says, they're together, together, together. Would would have never thought that. Let me just spend a little bit of time with these three togethers. Because this is a mystery, because it it really doesn't make any kind of spiritual or human sense. He says now, because what Christ has done, and this has been revealed now in Christ, is that the Jews and the Gentiles who have been brought together as one, they have equal inheritance. An equal inheritance. That those who are outside, those who are foreigners, those who are excluded, those who are untouchable, now get to be brought into the family, get to be brought to the table. You know, we sing that song, um, in my father's house, there's a place for me, I am who you say I am. We're sons and daughters, we're part of the family now. And we get an equal inheritance. In chapter one, it talks about how he adopted us as sons, and we said, well, you know, we wish we had more inclusive language, but no, no, no. The picture of that was that daughters didn't get an inheritance. He adopts us as sons because we get an inheritance. And in addition to that, in ancient cultures, in ancient times, there was a, a, a very common practice called primogeniture. I know it's a word that you use all the time. Say this word with me. Primogeniture. Now, see, you can impress your family and friends with that one. Primogeniture. Primogeniture was practiced in ancient cultures and it was the fact that the not just daughters didn't get the inheritance, but the oldest son, the firstborn son, got either the majority or all of the father's properties, herds, flocks, and, and such. And part of that was the idea that for the family name and the family line to remain strong, it makes far more sense to keep it all together than to divide it all up and make these smaller little farms and flocks and, and, and land... Uh, Masses, that to keep it all together and it would always go to the firstborn son. Well, it would just go to reason since in Exodus chapter four, God refers to Israel as my firstborn son. They are the people of the covenant that of course they would get all the inheritance. They would get all the goodness of God. They would have all the promise, everything that God has. But what's interesting, Timothy Keller points this out in, in a book that I, I can't remember the guy's name that it writes, but he says, but look at what God does. In the book of Genesis, in a culture where primogeniture is the, is the norm, God always favors the younger son. It's Abel, not Cain, who is pleasing to God. It's Isaac, not Ishmael, who is, the, who is the chosen son. It's Jacob, not Esau. And that God is saying, listen, I don't fit into the way the world operates. And while Israel is my firstborn son, it doesn't mean they get everything that we are joint heirs, not just with the firstborn son. What does the scripture say? Joint heirs with Jesus, that we have an equal inheritance, an equal share in all this. Okay. Ah, oh, okay, real quick. I don't have time for this, but this, to me this is so cool. I, I thought so. Some of you are familiar with the, the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told in Luke chapter fifteen. This older son who's there and he's obedient and this younger son who's often rebellious. Isn't that a picture of what's happening here where Israel is this older son who has always been near to the father and yet is still distant and this younger son is the Gentiles who have been far from God and both of them are in need of a relationship with God. And as it says in Ephesians chapter two, what Brian just covered last week, that the Israelites were near to God and the Gentiles were far from God, but both of them find peace in God. Okay, that's just fun stuff on the side. Anyway, so he says we are equal equal in this inheritance. And then he uses another picture that he's already talked about in chapter two when he says, the two become one new man, which again is this picture that he's drawing from marriage where in in Genesis and throughout scripture it says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and he and his wife, the two shall become one flesh. It's this picture of marriage. It's, it's the picture of Christ being the groom and the church being the bridegroom, and there's this oneness. And he says, now that there's this, these, these Gentiles and there's Jews, they're brought together as one man, there's a new man and it's a new body. And that we are parts of the same body. That we are together. We're, we're no longer separated. Before, the Gentiles were untouchable. They were excluded. He says, no, 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 they're part of us now. We are parts of the same body. We don't war against each other. Christ is the head of this body, and we work in in conjunction together in the power of Christ for his purposes. And then he gives this one other picture of, of these promises, that there's the shared promises, that even the Gentiles get in on this as well. What a mystery. No one would have ever come up with this. No one would have ever thought of it. It's been veiled, it's been hidden, but it's revealed. And I think when Paul realizes this, he's just like, how did I miss this? I've known the scriptures for my whole life. So like when he's writing uh, to the church, uh, uh, church in Rome, he's writing Romans 15, he says this. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. No problem with that. They're the chosen people. Christ is coming to fulfill that. It's been all through the prophets and the patriarchs. We got all that. No problem. Firstborn son, Israel, all that. That's, That's how they thought. That's how they've lived. That's how they've operated. He says, but that's not the end of it. God did all that. Yes, so that, so that, there was always, this was, this was not the end in and of itself. This was the means to another end. So that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. That the Gentiles get to glorify God. They get to experience God's mercy. And now he just goes on this rampage and he just starts going through all of his history of, of the Old Testament. And he quotes 2 Samuel chapter 22, I believe. He quotes Psalm 18. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32. He quotes Psalm 117 and he quotes Isaiah 11. He says, it is all through scripture. I don't know how I missed this. He says, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Like it's not just amongst the Jewish people in the temple, it's among the Gentiles as well. I mean, this was stated way back in Psalms and Samuel, or he goes on beyond that. And again, it says, talking about uh, another Psalm, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, with the Jewish, that they're coming together. And again, and he's quoting, or that was Deuteronomy, quoting Psalm again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples, not just the Jewish people, all of you get to praise him. And as it's again in Isaiah, Isaiah 11, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, the Gentiles will hope in him. From the very beginning he said, this is all going to come about so that all nations will have this good news, that even the Gentiles will rejoice, even the Gentiles will be together with you. And Paul realizes that this mystery that's been hidden, it's been revealed to him, and he is just taken by the incredible privilege that he gets to share this good news. I don't know if you've ever had something that, that you got to be the, the one who informs about something really, really good. You know, you get to go tell your kids about a vacation that you guys have been planning, but you haven't told, and it's a surprise, and you, you just can't wait, because you know they're gonna be ecstatic. They think you're going to Alger, and you're taking them to Maui. <laughs> and you get to tell them this and it's like you're more excited than they're gonna be because you get to tell them this you come home from the financial advisor and you get to tell you know look at what's happened this quarter or whatever it might be Paul has this this in him is like I get to do this I get to tell this it's been revealed to me verse 8 although I am less than the least of all God's people this grace was given to me what a privilege here it is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. I get to do this. I get to go to those who have always been seen as outsiders, outcasts, not a part, they're foreigners, They're, they're not members and I get to tell them they're a part of us. And I get to go to people who've never understood this and make very plain what has been hidden for ages. I get to tell them this mystery of what Christ has done, what has happened. And he says it's so amazing, and it it looks kinda like this. What was once a mystery now becomes the proclamation that that he, he gives his life to. What once was hidden now becomes unveiled. What, go back please. What didn't make any sense at all, he says, was God's plan all along in his great wisdom. This is how it plays out. It was hidden for ages, it was fulfilled in Christ, and it's lived out in the church. And then he goes on, and oh, how I wish we had time to dig into this, because this is so deep, where it says in verse 10, it was his intent that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. Not just that we are the carriers of the good news, which we are. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We get to do what Paul does. We get to tell this good news of the grace for everybody, no matter what they've done. We get to tell them that they can be included in the kingdom of God. We get to make cl- a very plain, clear what has been hidden for so long. We are the ones who bring the message, but we are the ones who demonstrate the reality of this mystery. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, he says the church, the church, the, the, the followers of Christ, are supposed to be like a pilot group, like a prototype of what it will be like in this world when God makes all things new again. Where there is grace, where there's forgiveness, where there's unity, where there's love, where there's acceptance, where there's accountability, where there's encouragement, that the church, if anywhere on the face of the planet this should happen, it should be with the people of God. Because we've experienced that. And we are to deliver that. And we are to live in that unity, to live in that gospel and in that grace. And he says, and this will be made known not just to the world, but to the spirit realm as well. It's an amazing thought that God would call us to this. And you say, okay, well, that, you know, that's all good. And Bob, I'm glad you've had fun with some of your rabbit trails. How does this apply to me? This is where he comes down to. And this is where we land on this one. With all of that said, verse 12, he says, In him, Christ, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And we've covered this so many times, that in the Old Testament, before Jesus, only one person could approach God only the high priest and only one day a week a year on the on the day of atonement and it was never with freedom and confidence it was with a great deal of hoops to jump through and a lot of fear involved but because jesus comes because his mystery is fulfilled in him because of the gospel the good news of what he has done it's not just the high priest on one day it's not just the levitical tribe the levites the, the priestly tribe It's not just Jewish men. It's not just Jewish people. It's Gentiles, it's people like us that we all can approach God with confidence and freedom and not just on Sunday and not just on the Day of Atonement and not just in our quiet time, all the time. See what he's saying is there's this invitation into the presence of God That unlike the Old Testament and unlike so many times throughout church history and unlike in our own mind, we don't need a human high priest to go before us into the presence of God. We don't need the Pope to go before us into the presence of God. We don't need a priest or a pastor to go before us in the presence of God. We don't even need our parents to go before us in the presence of God. Jesus said, because what I have done, I am your great high priest, you have permission and freedom to go into the presence of God and not just on Sundays when you're at church and not just when you're at the altar taking communion and not just when you're in your quiet time. This is the reality that we get to live in. This is the mystery that we get to live in. All right, we'll come back to that in just a second. So at the end of all this, this, this paragraph where Paul says, yeah, I just had to get that off my mind Verse 13 he says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are for your glory. Like, like, don't feel bad that I'm in prison. Don't feel bad that I'm stuck in Rome. Don't feel bad that people have death threats on me. Now, don't feel bad, I mean, I'm, I, this is a privilege. That's what God has called and created me to do and I get to do it so don't feel bad for me. He gets done with that, that, that parenthesis and goes like, now where was I? What was I saying? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. As I was saying, verse 14, for this reason, not where he was in verse one? For this reason, I kneel before, that's where we pick up next week. And then we look at coming back to what he was thinking the whole time. Now this whole paragraph, and this whole concept of this mystery that he tries to outline there, he summarizes it really well in one verse, in the letter that he wrote that we refer to as the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter one, verse 27, he writes, God has chosen, it's his decision, to make known, he's the one that reveals it, among the Gentiles, not just the Jews, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. To live in that mystery, all day, every day, to live in the reality that Christ is in me, I am in Christ. Everything I do, Jesus is right here. Everything that I do, whether I eat or drink, whatever I do, I do to the glory of God because Christ is in me, to live in this. This is the enigmatic reality that he calls us into, not just showing up at church for an hour, but to be transformed by the very presence of Christ and to live in that reality. That's the mystery. So I say to you, my spirit animal is a platypus (laughs) because I am such an enigma.